Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for asking me back. Uh, it's a great to be here in this a great small church community, this warm congregation. Our opening hymn this morning, The Church is One Foundation, is very fitting for this small church community. In the book of Acts, we read about the early church, small groups of believers proclaiming and advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. This Presbyterian church right here in Blue Lake exemplifies this very well. Now today's scripture readings are from Psalm 14, 2 Samuel 11, the story of David's in Bathsheba, which we just heard, Ephesians 3, one of the most powerful prayers in the whole Bible, and John 6, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on water. Well, like I said in the last time I was here, I'm just a flower farmer. I'm not a theologian, and these scripture readings are put together by a, by a council. I don't know who this council is, but they do a very nice job, because these scripture readings typically fit together very well. These readings are very rich in content. Now imagine being in a land with four rivers and suffering from incredible thirst. While these rivers are full of cool and fresh water that could help quench a thirst for a lifetime. So it is with the word of God as these four scripture readings this morning are analogous with four rivers satisfying our spiritual thirst of our souls. And today, I invite you to come along on a journey along the shores of these rivers and take a sip from each one of them and weave the pieces of all these four readings together in our message this morning. Dale Carnegie, in his timeless best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, starts in the first chapter describing some notorious criminals. He analyzes what makes these folks tick and how each and every one of them found rationale for their actions. Like Two-Gun Crowley, regarded at the time as one of the most dangerous offenders, ever accounted in New York City. The police commissioner said he will kill at a drop of a feather. In a note that he had left, he wrote, under my coat is a wary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Dan Carnegie, of Dan Carnegie, quotes Al Capone, one of the most infamous criminals in U.S. history. I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them have a good time, and all I get is abuse. Yes, Capone, America's most notorious public enemy, the sinister gang leader ravaging Chicago, did not condemn himself. He actually regarded himself as a public benefactor. So did Dutch Schultz 
before he crumbled up under gangster bullets in Newark. Dead Schultz, one of New York's most shameful villains, said in a newspaper interview that he was a public benefactor, and he actually believed it. Dale Carnegie wrote his book in 1936. Those were the criminals of that time. Are things any different now? Turn on the television, watch the news, and we are bombarded with images of shootings and killings of innocent souls. Or watch programs like Forensic Files, Nancy Grace, or America's Most Wanted, or The Hunt with John Walsh. These shows give an endless account of the criminals of today, highlighting the darkness in our society. Going back in time, 3,000 years, a disillusioned David found himself in the darkest hours in the darkest hour of his lifetime, when he wrote in Psalm 14, and I, uh, if you want to read along in your pew Bible, it's on page 495, uh, we have the reading of Psalm 14. Fools say in their heart, there is no God, there are, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike, perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and they do not call upon the Lord? There shall be a great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance of Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. David wrote this psalm as he fled from Jerusalem during Absalom's rebellion against his father. It was written during his darkest hour as he was forsaken by family and friends. Now, how did David get to this darkest hour of his life? We find the story in the book of Samuel, and its sequel, Samuel 2. It starts out as an autobiography of Samuel himself, and he's sent out by God to anoint Saul, Saul as Israel's first king. But Saul loses favor with the Lord, and Samuel is sent out again to anoint his successor. And this is where the amazing story of David comes into the picture. Here we have the son of Jesse, a sheep herder, and David is just a kid. He's the youngest one in the family, 
with seven older brothers. This is the ultimate rags to riches story. In today's vernacular, we would call it living the dream. He is the one who actually kills Goliath in this unlikely matchup with the giant Philistine. David succeeds Saul, and then he makes it big. King David is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. He reigns as king of Israel for 40 years. He wins battles against enemies, leads Israel to great prosperity. In other words, God has blessed him in many ways. Now one could argue, the more a person is blessed, the greater the likelihood of that person taking things in his own hand and actually believing that the fortunes came, came about because of his own doing rather than blessings from the Lord. Earlier this week, I visited our farm in Ontario, Canada. And on the way back, while in the Toronto airport, I noticed all these blonde-haired folks boarding my flight back to L.A. And upon takeoff, the pilot comes on the air, and he welcomes Team Denmark with players, coaches, with fans that filled most of the plane, traveling to the Special Olympics being held in L.A. this week. Then I got to think, Denmark. Denmark is actually an interesting case study of a country that has seen much prosperity. Denmark is ranked sixth in the world when it comes to GDP per capita. Clearly making it one of the most prosperous countries on earth. Yet, Denmark also ranks in the top three in the world in terms of atheist and agnostics rates. God is quickly forgotten when things go well and we feel like we no longer need him. So it went with David. He had it all. A palace built in the middle of Jerusalem, tremendous wealth, Several wives with many children, God had truly blessed them. But guess what? That wasn't enough. When his army was off fighting battles, he stayed home. He stayed home. And late in the afternoon, early evening, he wakes up and paces around on the roof of his palace, looking down into the city of Jerusalem. And he spots this stunningly beautiful woman called Bathsheba, as he is bathing herself. And suddenly, lust overcomes David, and he can no longer control himself. He orders her up to the palace, and you guessed it. Next thing we know, she's pregnant. Then he tries to cover up his tracks by ordering her husband Uriah back from the battle in hopes that he would spend, that they would spend time together 
so nobody would ever know the difference. But the husband refuses to sleep with his wife. He is still battle-weary. And David gets frustrated and uses his power in an act that can only be characterized as murder. As he instructs his top general to put Uriah up in the front line and don't give him any cover. After David commits this sin, the prophet Nathan, Samuel has passed away by now, is sent by God to reprimand David. He says that he has come to inform the king of a great injustice in the land. A rich man with many sheep stole the one beloved sheep of a poor man. And he slaughtered it for a feast. Furious at what he hears, David says, As God lives, the one who has done such a thing deserves to die. Then Nathan responds, Sir, you are that man. In other words, David is busted. Caught with his hands in the cookie jar. Or more accurately, caught with his pants down. So great, here we have the king that had it all. And he commits adultery and murder. What was he thinking? Now let's go back for a moment to the characters in Dale Carnegie's book. Or the ones we see in the tube every night. How would they have reacted? What would, would they have found justification? Why, it was, why this was actually an okay thing to do? Like blame the woman for being flirtatious. Or even the husband for not cooperating in the cover-up. But here is where the story takes a turn. <coughs> David gravitates to the proverbial sackcloth and ashes. He is deeply distressed about his actions. And this is the pivotal moment in the story. He repents and asks God for forgiveness. In one of the most moving times of his life, he cries out in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, Thee only I have sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. How often have we found ourselves in a spot where we know we did wrong? We know we made a step in the wrong direction. Do we justify it away and pretend things are fine? Did we drift from God? Are we living in inequity? Or do we ask for forgiveness and repent from our sins? God forgave David, but he did not give him a break. The torment followed David for the rest of his life. The child that was conceived out of wedlock 
died within months. He did marry Bathsheba, and God blessed her with another child, a very special child, a son called Solomon. And God blessed Solomon with incredible wisdom. Today, we can still tap into this wisdom, like drawing water from a deep well while reading Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Looking back at David's lifetime, his greatness shined in both his ability to take responsibility for his actions and the humility of the admission and the repentance that followed. This is part of the reason that the ultimate redeemer of the Jewish people and of the rest of the world, as Gentiles, as we see it here today, descended from David's line. Thousand years later, when Jesus Christ, Messiah, son of David, from the little town of Nazareth, was born. During Jesus' ministry, he quoted scripture from the Old Testament many times. And he used uh, scripture readings from Exodus, from Isaiah, from Deuteronomy. But he quoted the Psalms more than any other book. He cried out at the cross words that came straight from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after the feeding of the 5,000, he quoted Psalm 78, recalling the raining down of manna to eat. The story of the 5,000 and walking on water are familiar to most. How often have we heard the term, he can walk on water? It typically describes a person who can do a lot, a busy beaver, a type, type A personality. But there is only one person in the history of mankind who actually walked on water. Well, the seas were rough and stormy, and that was Jesus Christ. Peter did for a brief moment, but then he lost faith, and down he went. But he didn't drown, because Jesus was right there to pull him back up, just like he watches us and keeps us from going down and drowning, even when we are sometimes in the middle of our own storms. Then Paul found himself in the middle of storms a few times as he survived two shipwrecks. He became one of the most fervent disciples who ever lived. His letters to early believers help memorialize this. Sometimes these early believers, like the Ephesians, would go astray. In his letter to the Ephesians, he is clearly in distress. He is in jail. He has been forsaken by followers and friends. In other words, he is in the middle of a different type of storm. And hence his letter. In chapter 3, Paul wrote a prayer. That is not a timid prayer. It is one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture. He bows down on his knees before the Lord and he asks for inner strength 
from the power of the Holy Spirit. He asked that Christ may dwell in our hearts with faith, that we may know the love of Christ, and that His power will do far more than we would ever imagine. Earlier, I mentioned that people turning from God, when they feel they can do it alone, and God's help is no longer needed. But the reverse is true as well. Throughout history, great awakenings and revivals typically came after calamity struck, after the ravaging storms of life. Churches filled back up during and after World War II. The weekend following September 11 in 2001, millions flocked into churches in New York and across the nation. According to a report from the Barna Group, church attendance in New York City has grown from 31% in 2000 to 46% today. Why? Why? Because people are looking for more. Like the setting of feeding of the 5,000 connotes a large crowd that is hungry. Just like today, there are millions of souls that are hungry. Hungry not only for food, but more so for spiritual nourishment. In countries like Denmark and others, and right here in the United States, we see many people looking for other ways to satisfy emptiness by using drugs, alcohol, perversion, overeating, gambling, and the list goes on. But none of these habits satisfy the soul. The crowd of 5,000 was hungry. Nobody, nobody thought that there was any hope of food. But in Jesus Christ, anything is possible. And here we are in this little church right here in Blue Lake with believers in Jesus Christ. Just as Paul writes to the Ephesians, we ask God to strengthen the interbeing of today's church with power through His Spirit and that Christ dwells in our hearts through our faith, rooted and grounded in love. How about you? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus can walk on water in your storm, the storms in your lives, and come and reach out His hand and say, Come, I will get you out of your troubles and tribulations. Jesus said in John 6, 58, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is patient. He's waiting for us to ask for help. Surrender your heart to Jesus. Repent of your sins. And He is ready to provide us with the gift. The gift that's available to all who believe. Thank you. Amen.